The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, we are, we're looking now at this Christmas season of Advent, of asking, really filling in the blank. All I want for Christmas is... Uh, all I want for Christmas is, and we put so many things uh, at the end of that phrase. And normally underneath that, for some they're just simple gifts. All I want for Christmas is just a little bit of chocolate in the stocking, or uh, I'd like, you know, maybe an Xbox, or I'd like this or that or the other. And there's some simple things. But underneath so many of those fill-in-the-blanks, comes an attachment to a deeper thought. And the deeper thought may not even be conscious, but what we really are saying is simply this, if I had this, if I was brought this this year at Christmas, then I'd be content. Then I'd be satisfied. Then all of of life would make sense. If I just had this, Now, I'm not going to lie to you, this week I was having one of those, and if my Tar Heels would somehow just beat Clemson, then things would be all right in the world, and they didn't last night, and I've heard from so many of you, and I want to set the record straight on something. If you're a guest or a visitor, I'm just a big North Carolina fan, grew up there in North Carolina. It's a bunch of kids I don't know, young men, playing a game I've never played at a university I never attended. And so, at the end of the day, it's okay that they lost. Would have liked that they won, but I'm not despondent today. Because I didn't fill in the blank ultimately yesterday with my life hinges on whether or not this happens. Because you see, as we wrestle down and we realize and we say, you know what? What I want for Christmas is things that have eternal value, things that are weighty, things that are meaningful and to have meat and substance to them. Those are the things that I most want because if I have those things, if I have hope that goes beyond this world and is anchored into eternity itself, is settled there in the very throne room of God, if I have that hope and it drives and carries me forward, then anything else can come. If I have a love that is from God the Father, given to me through Christ, then I can make it through whatever circumstance presents itself. If I have joy, then I can celebrate life, then I can celebrate something that is deeper than what the circumstance determines. And my emotions are not going to be controlled by what is happening around me. If I have that joy, and if I have that peace, that shalom, that, that word that means flourishing. If I have this flourishing settled within me, then you know what? I can cheer a game and we can win or we can lose and it doesn't matter at the end of the day. That I can be married or I can be single. That I can have children or I can have no children. That I can be employed or I can be unemployed. That I could be wealthy or I could be impoverished. Uh, that I could have my health uh, or I could be stricken with disease. In the midst of whatever it is, if I have these things that are of eternal value, that are given to me only by the one who is the true source, who can give them out, 
if I have these things in my life, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be okay. But if I don't have them, then send all the sympathy texts you can because I would need them to buoy up my life. I would have to have all of that because nothing would really make sense otherwise. And so we looked last week and we said that what God gives us, the ultimate gift giver, the the ultimate one who blesses us, who looks and says, I see your list and I'm going to I'm going to take that list and I'm going to recategorize it and I'm going to look underneath the words and I'm going to see the motives that are presented by uh, those things on the list. And here's what I'm going to give you this year. I'm going to give you hope and I am going to give you love and I'm going to give you joy that springs eternal and I'm going to give you peace that gives you a deep satisfaction in whatever situation. That's what God gives to us. And some of you are going, but that's not what I want. Well, our eternal heavenly parent says, yes, but I know what you need, even if you don't understand. And I'm going to give them to you, and I pray that your wants come in line with these things. And so this morning, we're going to look at love. We're going to look at how God gives to us through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And then ultimately, ultimately, Christ came in the world to serve a purpose He didn't just come and then sometime later go, oh, I think I'll get around to this sacrifice thing. But he came for that express purpose. Everything in his life led to this table, that it led to a cross, that it led to that, and it was driven by love. And so we're going to look at love this morning. And I want you to understand something. I'm differentiating, very strongly differentiating between love and sentimentality. We live in a world that's incredibly sentimental. Uh, that produces sentimentality and sells it off, packages it in such a way uh, that we think that it is love. But sentimentality, it has some of the nuances of love. It has some of the characteristics of love. But what it does, sadly, at the end of the day, is it romanticizes life too much. It romanticizes things too much. Because, you see, sentimentality only looks at a very gloss of exterior. It doesn't understand the depth of love. Sentimentality says, oh, when I get married, nothing could ever go wrong. If I just find my sweetheart, then it'll be great. Sentimentality doesn't know what it's like to sit next to a bed and to see cancer eat your loved one alive. Sentimentality doesn't know what it's like to be there alone in a marriage. Sentimentality says, oh, if I just have kids in marriage, then, ah, then it'll be good. Life will get sweet then. It doesn't understand the heartbreak of a loving parent that stays faithful to a rebellious child. It doesn't know the love of a parent who loves an unborn child so much that they are weeping at the loss in a miscarriage. Sentimentality romanticizes things. Sentimentality uh, thinks that, oh, if we just get these, or if I just do this, then all's going to be well. But love, love goes down deep. 
Love goes down, and love has within it a root that, like hope, is rooted somewhere beyond this world. It's rooted in God the Father Himself and in all that He is. And so this morning, as we look at love, a love that is given to us at Advent, a love that is given to us in Christ Jesus, we're going to go to the, the wonderful pastor, John who knew love, for he sat with his best friend and his Savior. He reclined against Christ's chest at table, and he knew him. He was one who loved Christ and was called the beloved one by Christ. Outlived all of his peers in solitude there on the island of Patmos, bore on his body the scars and the pain of suffering and persecution for the one that he loved more than anyone else and wrote these profound words both in his gospel of John and in his letters or epistles. The familiar words of John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then later writing a letter to his congregation, as it were, around the world and even throughout all the ages, in 1 John 4, verses 7 to 12, he says, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, we ask now for your spirit to come and to fill us afresh and anew. Teach us from your word. Encourage us, strengthen us, and send down the sinews and the roots of our faith and our love into the very heart, your heart, of our Creator and our God. We give you praise in your Son's name. Amen. Well, the first thing that we are going to see, if we want to have within our lives true love that isn't just sentimentality, but a true love that has romantic elements to it, that does look and see beauty in the midst of it, but a love that goes, we need to find first our source uh, of love, and we find that our source of love is in God himself. Then we need to understand the design of love. We need to understand that this love that we gain from God is designed, it has a function, it has a purpose, it's not just ambiguous, but that God, uh, his love for us is expressed through us in a particular way. And then we need to consider for a moment the objects of God's love. And then from that, how his love for us then goes out to the world through us. 
And then we come, and in a very real way, we touch God's love for us, that we experience his embrace here at the table. And so the first thing that we see is this, that God is love, that God is love, that John is saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and that this is love, that you love one another, and that God is love. He's saying this love that you would gain, that the love that you desperately want is a love that is generated out of who God is. It's out of his very nature and out of his very character, and it's almost as if John was being pressed a little bit. It's almost as if John was being pushed and saying, John, what's the best, what's the most important attribute of God? If you had to, to bring it all down, boil it all down and pick one, what would be the attribute of God? And John, being the consummate theologian, would have gone, wow. Well, I know there's the incommunicable ones, those that are of God and they can't be communicated to us. And, and I know that's his omnipotence, that's God's all-powerful. And that's incredibly important. And, and that God is all-knowing, he's omniscient. And, and I know that's incredibly important. And, and I know that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere, concurrent at the same time. And I know that's incredibly important. But none of those were given to us. And so maybe he would have thought back to his friend and fellow laborer, Paul, and gone, oh, well, what about faithfulness? God is faithful. He's wise. He is good in that he has deep and profound integrity. He's holy. He is just. He is all of these things. Those are true and those are important. But it's almost as if John said, okay, if you want me to pick one, God is love. That God isn't loving, but he is love. And from that, from his very DNA, from the very character of who he is, he then is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is all of these other things, but they spring forth from a dynamic, from a character that is God himself. This is who he is. He is love. He isn't just loving he is love. He doesn't just look and produce love in other people, but it is him. And so it would make sense, it seems, that if God is love, it's just a simple logic, if God is love, and that is the greatest attribute of God, is his love, and from that love drives his justice and his mercy, it drives all that he is then it would make sense that those who claim to be his followers, those who would be his adopted daughters and sons, those who would be his disciples, would also have as a salient characteristic of who they are that love predominates who they are. John wrote in chapter 13 of his gospel, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John was saying this, if you want to know whether or not you are a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to know whether you have been adopted into the family of God and are taking on the characteristics of your father, if you want to know that, then here's what you need to do. Here's your litmus test. Do you love? Do you love? Do you have love within your heart? Is it a part of who you are at a very core, 
At the basis, people would look at you and they go, well, he's this or he's that or he's an extrovert or he's an introvert or she's this or she's that. But I know this, at their very heart, at their very core, they're loving. Love is at the very root of who they are. For God said, if you are my follower, you would love in this way. And Christ picked up on that. And when he was pressed and they were trying to say, what's the one commandment? What's the most important commandment? He says, here's how I understand the commandments. Love. Love the Lord your God with all that you have. And love others as you love yourself. In this encapsulates the fullness of the law. For he understood that everything else is going to pass away. Wisdom, knowledge, justice, all these will pass away. But the thing that remains throughout all of eternity is love. Is a deep and a profound, honest love. Again, not sentimentality. This table isn't sentimental. A sentimental love would say, oh, they're just being human. You know them. You know, they just sin. I just love the person, the sinner, and not this, and hate the sin. That's sentimentality. But you have to wrap it all in together and go, no. This love is an honest love. And it says that justice has to be demanded. It says that it has to be meted out. It says that they stand guilty and somebody has to pay. In the midst of this love, it's not just sentimentality, but it goes down deep and it is profound and it comes from the very heart of who God is. And so today, if you're asking and you're saying, where can I find this love? If you're coming to church and hoping, where can I find this love? The only answer that we have as Christians to give to you is this, look to God. Look to Him and see in Him. And consider if it's the greatest attribute of God then shouldn't it also be the greatest attribute of those who claim to be his children and his disciples? So then we would have to ask, okay, we know that the source is God, that it comes from God. It is an extension of who he is given to us by the power of his spirit and planted in us and we're transformed in that way. But then how then does this love express itself? How does this love express itself? For God expresses his love to us in this way. By Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That he so loved. That so doesn't mean the amount of love. He loved so much. How much? So much. Well, how much do you love me? This much. This much? Yeah, this much. No, it's not an equation in that way. It's more of the way of love. He doesn't mean God loved so much, but that God loved in this way. A better way to translate that would be this. Instead of God so loved, a better way to say would be God thus loved. God thus loved the world this way. And this is the way that God loved. He gave his only begotten son. God gave. That God being loved, the expression of his love, the way that he understood to show love, the design of his love, is this, I'm going to give away my love through the thing that is most precious to me. That love is expressed by giving. Giving something that is precious. Giving something uh, that is valuable to us. God says, I gave my son. 
And I gave him for an express purpose, and that was to be consumed. He says that he was a propitiation, that he was going to take my wrath, that he was going to come and be consumed by me so that I could love others. You see, this is a giving love. And it's a love that gives that which is most precious to you. And so I want to give this as a way of warning. A sentimental person would simply say, oh, I want the love of God. I want to love like God loves. Be careful. Be careful of that request. Because God will look and say, really? Do you know what you're asking for? Because here's what love looks like. I'm a father and I love my son. And I am going to give my son to you in this world. And he is going to suffer. And he is going to die. But I love that much which I am willing to relinquish my hold on something that is treasure and valuable to me. And I'm willing to let it go. Because I love. Don't ask for love unless you want to have a love that says this. I'm willing, God, to love you. I want to love I want to be a loving person. Well, if you're going to be a loving person, if you're going to have love in your life, it's going to cost you something. And then, Or else it's not love, not biblical love. It may be Shakespearean sonnet love. It may be romanticized love. It it may be uh, in today's vows that some people take before God and before man. They say, instead of as long as we both shall live, they'll say as long as we both shall love. Well, what does that mean? But if you're asking for a love on your wish list that is God's kind of love, then it is an incredibly costly love that says, God, I'm willing, I'm willing to love you and give you that which is incredibly precious to me, even my own life. Very few of you will ever be called to that of martyrdom. But I promise you this morning, there's our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who, when they say, I'm willing to say that I love God, that means I'm willing to die. I'm willing to widow my wife. I'm willing to orphan my children because of my love for God. It prevails over every other love in this world. The love that God gives to us is a love that says, I'm willing then to give of the things which are most valuable. And for some people, that is your wealth. For other people, it's your time. For some, it's your dignity and it's your reputation and standing within the community, which you've worked so hard You've worked so hard to manage that you have this picture in the world. And God is saying, I want you to look different to the world. I want you to stand for me. And that may cost you. It may cost you that next deal. It may cost you something. It may cost you your lives and your children. I remember a man who was the CFO of one of the largest companies in the world, and he was incredibly successful. He sent his daughter to school at an incredibly expensive private school, had sent her her whole life to incredibly expensive and prestigious preparatory schools, and she went, and this man loved God, and his prayer was most likely regularly, God, I love you, and I want to show my love, and I'm going to do this, And his daughter, after the hundreds of thousands of dollars of educational expenses, said, Mom and Dad, I've given my life fully to Jesus Christ, and I'm going to go into full-time ministry. And I'm going to pursue Christ in that way. And the parents almost disowned her. 
They weren't getting a return on their investment. God, I said I would love you, but I didn't mean take my daughter. I didn't mean take my reputation when I go and talk to all of my friends and they say, hey, where's your daughter doing now? And he goes, oh, well, she graduated with honors from college and now she's asking for money to do ministry to college students. And his reputation was sullied. You see, he wanted something, but not a costly love. So be careful. If you're saying, God, I want your kind of love generated out of your heart that is an extension of you, then it could possibly lead you to a table like this. Of saying, God, I'm willing to sacrifice those things which I hold most dear in my life to you. For love gives. It's incredibly generous. It's sacrificial. And it takes all of our treasures, our most valued possessions, And what we ultimately say to God is this, God, if I love you more than anything else, and I'm going to love my neighbor, then here's everything that I have. I'm simply a steward of it. Dispense it as you would. Use it as you would. That's hard, isn't it? Honestly, isn't that hard? It's okay to say that. You're human. That's hard. That's what God's inviting you into. But know this, as a quick aside, he never ask you to do something that he hasn't already done and he doesn't ask you to do something that he doesn't give you the power through his spirit to accomplish for him in your weakness he's made strong so this love that is rooted in God that comes from him God is love is designed and comes out by being a sacrificial giving love and then who are the recipients of this kind of sacrificial giving love that's the important thing oh well it must be just the lovely people right it's easy to love the lovely people But look at what God said. For God so loved the world. Hmm. The world. This rebellious, complaining people who rejected their creator, who would rather worship the creature, who would rather hold on to some vestige of control than to bend the knee and acknowledge that they are not in control. God said that while we were yet sinners, or Paul wrote, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the object of this love are folks who don't really want it. Who don't appreciate it. Any of you ever given a gift to someone and they didn't acknowledge it, didn't write you a thank you note? Is that sort of, is that a little burr under your saddle? Any of you get frustrated with that? Yeah. And God's saying, get over it. He's saying, you don't love to get something back. I, I loved this incredibly rebellious people. You see, we don't give our love to people who just are worthy of that love. The idea is to give your love to the people who are actually most unworthy of it. Because if you look at the context of John in chapter 3, you know that if you're going to franchise a business, or if you're going to locate your business somewhere, what's the most important thing? If you're in real estate, what's the most important thing? Location, location, location. Well... In biblical economics, 
The most important thing is this. Context, context, context. Look at your verse, look at your passage, and look at what is in front of it and what's behind it. And if you were to take your Bibles and flip right ahead of this, you would know, oh, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, one of the leaders of Israel. And he had just told Nicodemus about what it means to be born again. Oh, that's awesome. And then he goes back to this really weird place in Numbers, and he writes these words. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. You see, it's all flowing out of that You see, what's happening here is that God is saying, I have given my love. The recipients of my love are a people that could best be described in Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. You see, the people of Israel were in the Exodus, and they were in the time away, and God was providing for them manna and quail and water and everything that they needed. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had taken them out of their plight. He was leading them into the promised land. And he was taking them there. He was providing for them. And you know what the people did? They didn't write thank you notes. They actually said, we're sick of manna. And we're sick of quail. And we're just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we kind of like to go back to Egypt. Thank you very much, God. It was better for us back there. And the God of the universe would have none of it. And they said that he sent serpents into the midst of their camp. And many of them were snake bit and poisoned and were dying. If you've ever been around somebody who's been bitten by a snake on their hand, it's interesting. You go to the emergency room and you'll see that they begin to mark hour number one, hour number two, hour number three as the poison moves up and through the arm. And if it gets here... They don't have to write any more hours other than time of death. And you can imagine these people who were there who had rebelled against God. And God said, I'm still going to love these people. Moses, go and make a serpent out of brass and sit it on a staff. And everyone who looks at that staff, everyone who sees their desperate need, everyone who's willing to believe by faith is going to be saved. All of the snake-bitten, rebellious people in the world will look and see this. And it was a pointer to Christ. Because Jesus said amazingly, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, the recipients of God's love are people who recognize that they're rebellious and they're snake-bit. They look at their arm. And they're like, okay, all right, what am I going to do about this? And someone says, just look at the brass serpent and you'll be saved. I would hope that my first thought would be, okay, I'm looking. I'm going to look there. But sadly, here's what human nature says. No, I got this. I can figure this out on my own. I see it. It's coming up. I'm dying, but I'm not going to admit that I'm dying. Because in admitting that I'm dying, I have to admit that I was guilty. And I'm not going to do that. I will not 
ever sacrifice my pride and ego. I will not bend the knee. I will do this on my own. And Jesus says, those are the kinds of people that God sent his son to die for. And so consider for a moment this. In order to look at Christ by faith, to look at him and be healed, you must first consider yourself just like the serpent bit rebellious people. That you have to see your need and you have to look away from it and look to someone, something else, Christ. You see, God loves you. He loves you and all of your messed upness, with all of your foibles, with all of your poison, with all of your snake bites, all of your rebellion. He says, I love you. And if that's the case, if you can own that for a moment and you can turn and you can look at Christ, he says, you will be forever transformed. And then this amazing thing happens. You know what you're then able to do? You're able to love other rebellious, snake-bitten, poisoned people in the world without condescension, and without pride and ego. Where you say, I know I was just like you. And the only difference is that I saw a Savior. Charles Spurgeon, as we prepare to come to the table, the great preacher in London when he was 16, he was unconverted, and he happened to a small Methodist chapel, and there were about 15 people in the midst of the chapel, in the midst of a snowstorm, and the pastor couldn't be there, and so it was a layperson who was preaching that night. And the text was Isaiah 45, look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And at one point, he looked right at this young boy, and the pastor looked at him and said, young man, look to Christ. Look. Look look. And years later, Spurgeon wrote, I saw at once the way of salvation. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard the word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. I'd say the same to you today. Are you willing to look? Are you willing to look at true love? And be transformed by it. Let's pray.